Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Prime Time. Now, Singapore is the only country in the world that permits the commercial sale of cell-based protein, also known as lab-grown meat, cultured meat or cell-based meat, and is leading a global charge to get consumers on board. Well, another cell-based meat company is poised to have its products introduced in restaurants here in Singapore. Vow Foods' first product brand, Morsel, it's a cultured Japanese quail made and crafted in Australia, created from its cultured meat technology, will be in restaurants next year. To find out more, we're being joined now by George Peppo. He's co-founder of Vow Food. It's a cultured meat company based in Sydney, Australia. It claims to be creating products that are tastier, more nutritious, and more sustainable than the meat we eat today. Hi, George. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Okay, so we've got to get straight to it, George, because I do know of a lot of people who have doubts about cultured meat and any such thing that is cell-based. How safe is it? How nutritious is it? Public acceptance is an issue, isn't it? Oh, it definitely is. And since the very beginning of Vow and uh, founding it three and a half years ago, our whole view was just making the things we already have isn't enough. We need to use this technology to make things which serves needs, meets, can't. Mm. Making foods that are tastier or more exclusive and especially more nutritious and more functional than meats for animals. And so the only way I believe we're going to be able to persuade you and other consumers to try and enjoy and make this a part of your diet every day is if it solves a problem for you and is able to make your life easier. And how is this supposed to make our lives easier, though? Well, in the case of our first product, Morsel, to be honest, it's not. It's about just giving you an experience and a window into what your food in the future can be. Mm -hmm. In the long term, a lot of the products that we're working on and developing are far more nutritious. So they have a better nutritional profile. Uh, For instance, uh, they may have a flavor which is similar to something like beef or venison or the red meats. Mm -hmm. But a nutritional profile that's close to the salmon and enriched with B vitamins, omega-3s or other nutrients that you expect to find in meat. So you end up with something which is really, really tasty and something you want to be eating on a Tuesday night. But it also is far more nutritious um, so that you end up with something which is a really, really no compromise meal for you to enjoy. Here's the thing, though, George. A lot of people say this. People in the business say that, okay, lab-grown meat is not only tasty, it's nutritious. It's also more ecologically and environmentally friendly. But clearly, even countries are having a problem approving this. So Singapore is the first one. We're leading the global change. But you're having problems getting approval in other countries, right? So how can you get them on board? (laughs) It's funny you say this. uh, I remember thinking this a couple of years ago with the Australian regulator and thinking, well, they're not going to approve us. They have problems with what we're doing. And then I spoke to the regulator and they said, no, 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 no. We, We don't have any problems. We understand exactly what you're doing. We're waiting on you to give us data. And that's the case with most regulators around the world, from uh, the US to Singapore to Australia to even the EU and some places in the Middle East. They're waiting on us to be ready with products to launch. Mm -hmm. They're ready to approve. They understand that the risks of cultured meat are significantly lower than using animals in agriculture. And they're really just waiting on us to give them our own risk assessment and the evidence of how how we manage all the risks all the standard food risks and all the new risks of cultured meat. So, George, for something that is, well, relatively new technology in food, how will you have long-term data to, to, to give to these regulators? So there isn't any long-term data that we can give because it is so new. 
unfortunately, food has been around for such a long time and we have a really, really clear understanding of what risks exist in the things that we eat Mm -hmm. and how similar the cultured meat is to things that are already in our diet. And so the vast majority of risks are things that we already understand, like microbiological, the nutritional profile of it, heavy metals that are really easily measured and understood. There's a few risks that are new because we are culturing these cells but those are really, really specific and discrete risks that we can have new controls in place for. Mm. Talk to us about the risks that we should be concerned yes, about. I definitely don't think you should be concerned about the risks. You have to keep of in mind. Of course, you would say that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep in mind that animal agriculture is a really, really high risk product. If you think about what happens in an abattoir, mm-hmm. you're disassembling an animal. There is a huge amount of risk of contamination. There's a number of things within animals that are really, really high risk and dangerous, and a huge amount of foodborne diseases that come directly from animal agriculture, we're not starting from an ultra-safe product. We're not replacing something which is extremely robust and repeatable and safe. We're producing an extremely highly controlled environment that is entirely sterile and absent of these uh, microbes or anything which is going to cause you problems. And so there is a really, really clear and predictable risk profile around what we're producing Mm. that is much more easily managed than animal agriculture. So talk to us about the process then, because some animal activists have said, oh, you guys do biopsies on animals to collect cells. These are raising animal welfare issues. There could be contamination as well. So tell us more about the process. Um, The process is conceptually very straightforward, practically quite difficult. Um, We have to start with a source of cells from animals. So if you think about what meat is, it's really muscle fat and connective tissue cells drive a lot of the sensory experience and nutritional profile. What we do is we either start with a biopsy from an animal that's already being processed for consumption in food or occasionally an egg. Mm -hmm. We then separate out cells that repair muscle, fat or connective tissue that can be stored down for as long as we want. Uh, We store them cryogenically. And then when we're ready, we basically thaw them and we place them in a nutritional media, which is a lot like a sports drink. It's lots of sugars, salts, amino acids, and a few other things that instruct the cells to grow. We then place those in just the right conditions, temperature, gas, oxygen, everything that the cells need. And they just keep doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. And then when we're ready to harvest, we separate them out from that media and we, uh, then we're ready to consume them or put that, basically package them and ready to um, share them to customers. So One of the key things is the cells we're producing just grow slower than anything else. Mm-hmm. So most of the things that are going to make you sick in food are fungus, bacteria, viruses. They all grow faster than our cells. And so if we end up with something in there that is not meant to be in there, something which breaks that sterility, we never get to the point of harvesting a batch. And so we have this really nice uh, this really nice process for producing this where we can only finish a batch if it's completely free of those pathogens. So you're producing and reproducing cells and you're not really producing an animal with a heart and soul. Or So (laughs) the, the meat that comes out from this, though, what is it like? So we end up harvesting something which is lacks a lot of structure. It looks a bit like a pate, and then we have ways to add in more of a traditional meaty structure. Um, and so it's kind of it's, uh, hard to describe without going into too much detail. So it's a detail. processed food type of thing, then, if it's like a pate, and then you put things in to give it that texture that we are familiar with. So it ends up looking like a mincemeat at the moment. Okay. We have we have a few different versions, some that look like mincemeat, some that look like fish fillets, um, mm. some which look more like a whole cut. Um, the thing so is, we're, like, we're being warned about the dangers of processed food. So yes. that's the other thing that I think people might be concerned about. How do you allay those concerns? Well, we're not really processing this in the same way as traditional food. We're mm. producing just the cells that we want to be eating outside of the animal. 
So they're not a highly processed food. We're not taking a plant protein and extracting some part of it and then processing that extensively. We're growing animal cells, which are sensibly identical to what you'd find in meat. How environmentally friendly is this process? Because we, you do say that all of this meat that you produce in a lab is a lot more environmentally sustainable than industrialized agriculture or industrialized farming and livestock growing. But at the end of the day, how do you make sure that the carbon footprint of all this processing is small as well? Oh, and that's a really, really key part for us. One quick correction, we don't produce this in a lab, we produce it in a factory. Like right. any food, we develop mm. it in a lab. Um, you know, even an Oreo is developed in a lab and then it's produced in a factory. We, so the, when we think about the production process, we know exactly what goes into it in terms of the power, the water, the cells, the labor, the transport. We measure that very, very precisely to understand exactly the environmental impact of it. By every metric, land use, water use, uh, and total emissions, it's a tiny, tiny fraction, somewhere between 90 and 95% less than animal agriculture. Um, and that is even at a relatively small scale. That improves as we move to larger and larger scale production. You know, some might say, George, instead of just providing pseudo alternatives to feed a population that just demands more and more, why not persuade consumers to eat better? Don't consume such large amounts of industrially farmed meat. Eat less but better quality meat that's produced in a more environmentally and ecologically friendly manner. Diversify your diet. You're laughing. That's a lovely idea. Which means you have no faith faith in humanity, do you? I to be blunt, I don't. Is I, I, I right. see this in myself. <laughs> I see this in my family and friends. Everyone around me understands the environmental consequence of the meat they eat, mm. but they choose to eat it regardless of how it's farmed because it's such a good experience. Mm. And the decision we make about food, we're making three, four, five times a day. The willpower you'd have to expend to not choose the thing that is the most delicious over and over again every day is enormous. And I don't think it's practical to expect people en masse to make that decision. Mm. I think it's or to much, even much expect the farmers to make those decisions, to only have free-range chickens, for example. Well, right? if, if we did go down that route, if we only allowed free-range farming, there'd be a tiny fraction of the meat available today. And so a huge number of people would go without mm-hmm. eating meat. And that They might make different choices. Well, I think without industrial industrial farming and and meat, we won't have enough food for everyone in the world to eat. I was going to say, and so then it's really a question of do you think people deserve to have the food they want to eat or do you think the government should be imposing regulations on how meat should be farmed which then drives dietary decisions for the vast majority of people. It does sound, yeah, it does sound like a large problem requiring a large mass of people to have a mindset change and behavioral change as well. So I guess this seems like the simpler option, right? Give them alternatives. But uh, here's the thing. The Financial Times recently reported that data provider Spins found that after a 46% rise in 2020 on the back of soaring demand at the start of the pandemic, sales of plant-based meat in the U.S. fell 0.5%. We saw another report that the stock price of an L.A.-based company Beyond Meat dropped more than 75% this year. If we're talking about meat alternatives, it seems that the plant-based meat anyway, specifically, isn't doing so well. So how are you processing all of this? So this is a, I mean, the reason Vow exists is exactly what you're talking about. 
I don't believe you change the habits of meat eaters by trying to sell beef mints to people that want to eat beef mints. And that's mm. what companies like Beyond, Bur- you know, Beyond Meat are doing. And a lot of the companies that are driving the statistics that you're talking about, I believe the only way that we're going to create any kind of change in people's diets is by creating products that are superior to meats from animal agriculture. So the whole reason that VOW exists, the whole reason that we've been building this company for the last three and a half years is because we saw what you're talking about coming. There's no way you're going to persuade us as experts in what beef, chicken and pork taste like that this replica or this replacement that's trying to mimic that experience is the same thing. And consumers are seeing that and they're not going back and buying these products. Very interesting. How will cultured meat, do you think, uh, rank in the hierarchy of food? You have the free range, the organic, the farm, farmed food and meat that we have. And then you have your cultured ones. So it's, it's my hope and it's what we're working towards that will be seen. Ultimately, what we're producing is how will be seen in an entirely separate category. Okay. And what I mean by that is you know, letters, traditional letters and faxes were seen as kind of one and the same. You had an electronic letter or you had a letter. And then email comes along and it's this entirely different (laughs) paradigm that opened up all of these new possibilities. And that's really what we've been trying to build. It's a new category. It's a new way of thinking about what meat is. It's not in the same terms as traditional agriculture and not in the same terms as companies that you're talking about. Mm. I understand that you are moving into more exotic meats like buffalo, kangaroo, alpaca as well. Why? (laughs) Alpaca. Why have you Um, chosen to take this path? We go one step further than this. We don't even make, we don't even intend to sell most of our products as animals at all. So in the same way that you understand a breakfast cereal like Cheerios as a brand, based on the sensory experience that it delivers and the nutritional profile it delivers, we're building our products to be sold purely as brands and not as animals. And so the only reason we've been growing things like alpaca and buffalo is to identify the fastest, cheapest to grow cells that allow us to come to market with really, really high-quality, safe food as quickly as possible. Okay, so this Japanese quail that we mentioned earlier, how are you marketing this one then? If you're not uh, going to use the meat parallel or the non-vegetarian parallel, what exactly can we expect to see then? So our first product is called Morsel. And while it's made with Japanese quail cells, it's really about introducing a truly new and exclusive meat to the market, especially in somewhere like Singapore. When you eat morsel, it has this really rich and strong umami flavor and melts in your mouth and then has these really beautiful, almost like um, seafood, lobster, langoustine flavors in it. And so it's a really delicate, beautiful, light-colored meat and works really, really well in quite sophisticated fine dining environments. It's really for the very curious foodies that are sick of seeing the same thing at the same type of you know high-end ingredients over and over and over again and want to try something which is truly new and truly exclusive and be amongst the first people on the planet that are eating what everyone is going to eat decades down the track. (laughs) Okay, sounds like it's going to be an experience. So you just got $49.2 million in Series A funding. What are you going to use the money for? (laughs) We've been uh, very busily building out our second factory. So we have one factory that's operating, and and we're now building out our second factory. We're getting ready to launch Morsel in uh, Singapore first. And then working on a couple of other markets after that and then developing a lot of very, very interesting products down the line that are more of those really ultra nutritious products that give you a far more nutritionally dense food than any animal meat can. I think I'm going to miss traditional meat when this becomes uh, a norm. Uh, George, thank you very much for sharing this with us. George Pepu, co-founder of Val Foods. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.
Available on Google Play or the App Store.